Let's uh, turn to Habakkuk chapter 3, and we're going to start. Now, we left off, remember, in Habakkuk chapter 2, God had given an answer to Habakkuk. First question Habakkuk had is, how long do we have to deal with this? And God said, you just need to wait and trust me because I'm wise. I'm doing a work that you don't even understand. The second question was, or the, the rest of that answer was, by the way, I am doing something. I'm raising up these Chaldeans, these Babylonians, to come deal with the sin. And then Habakkuk had more questions, right? Whoa, 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 why are you doing that? How can you punish evil with more evil? And so God gives his answer. What is that? I'm going to punish them too. And so we went through all the reasons he's going to punish the Babylonians and the evil things that they're after and, and after their own self-pleasure and their own possessions and everything. And God says, I will bring them to judgment. But at the end of that, it said, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And so now Habakkuk just has to sit and listen to what God has said and deal with that, meditate on that, and now he's going to respond. So in chapter 3, we really get the responses that Habakkuk has to hearing all this from God and the responses that we need to have as well, all right? So our three big points for this one, they're going to be three responses to God's judgment of evil, okay? So how do we respond when we know that God is going to judge evil? And here's our theme, all right, you ready for your title? title up top is God of Strength, okay? So we had God of Wisdom, we had God of Justice, and now we have God of Strength. And then here's your theme. God is perfectly sovereign, okay? So first we had God is perfectly wise, we had God is perfectly just, now we have God is perfectly sovereign. God is perfectly sovereign, and He deserves our praise and our trust. He deserves our praise and our trust, all right? So in chapter 3, <clears throat> Habakkuk has three responses to God's judging of evil. And the first one we're going to find in verse 1 and 2 is that we need to pray for God's mercy. We must pray for God's mercy. When we look out at the evil in the world, one of the things it should remind us is that, one, we are also sinners and deserve judgment, but also that God's judgment has to come on that evil. And you know what? If God's judgment comes on the earth, you know who lives here? Me, us, right? I care if God's going to judge people for their sin because I'm here and I'm going to endure that somehow as well. And so one of the things we can do is we can pray for God's mercy, right? All right, so let's look at verse 1. This is, you see kind of a transition here between Habakkuk and God talking. And now chapter 3, verse 1, it says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shagayanah. Okay? Habakkuk the prophet, it's a prayer to God. This is his response to God. And then it says, according to Shagayanah. Somebody tell me what that means. I'm just kidding. None of you know. Nobody knows. Hebrew scholars don't know. You don't know. I guarantee I know. you. It's a highly emotional platform. Yeah, see, that's one option of like a million. So, no. Okay? We have no clue. It's one of those musical things. Uh, look down at the end of chapter 3, <clears throat> the very end of verse 19. It says, for the choir director on my stringed instruments. instruments. So Habakkuk wrote this not only as a prayer, but he wrote it so that the people could sing it back to God. Okay? So whatever Shagayanath means, it's something about how they play the music or the chords or whatever. We don't know. Okay? But I'm sure it sounded awesome. Okay? So uh, Drew's going to write a song in Shagayanath form for this, and we'll sing it. Maybe next year. All right. So we must pray for God's mercy. Okay, first verse tells us what's going on. Habakkuk is praying. Here's the first thing he says in his prayer. Verse 2. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years make it known in wrath. 
remember mercy. Habakkuk tells God, look, I've heard everything you just said. I heard your first answer that you were going to raise up the Chaldeans. That makes me uncomfortable. I heard the second thing that you said, that you are not going to leave them unpunished. You're going to come and you're going to punish them and destroy them and judge them for the things that they do. And I am realizing, God, that you are way, way bigger than me. Okay? And so he says, Lord, I've heard the report and I fear. Now, do you think he's afraid of God, like, scared, terrified? Maybe a little bit. God just said that he's going to destroy all these people. But mostly, it's all reverence. God, you are something I can't understand. You're bigger than me. You're stronger than me. You are totally and completely different. You are other. Psalm 119, the psalmist there says, My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. Maybe that's what Habakkuk's feeling. I'm afraid, God, because I know your judgment has to come on sin. And we're going to see that in our, in our world. But look what he says next. He says, I fear, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years make it known. Basically what he's saying is, all the things that we've heard you do in the past, all the times that you, you, were, you judged sin, but also all the times you delivered your people, God, we want to see something amazing in our day. It says, revive your work in the midst of our years. We want to see you do something amazing right here in our lifetimes. Dr. Bailey says, Habakkuk calls on God to work in the present day in the way that he had worked in the past. God, we want to see you accomplish what you need to accomplish now. So, question for you and me. How often do we say, God, I want your will to be done. I want you to be shown how amazing and glorious you are. I don't care what happens to me. I don't care how easy or hard it is. I want your work to be on display. It's a hard prayer to pray. It's a hard prayer to mean. Because then it means we don't get to decide what happens, right? But look at how he finishes this, this verse. He tells God, God, I want you to do whatever you need to do. Revive your work. Whatever you have to do, if it's judging sin, I want you to do it. But God, in wrath, remember mercy. Kind of hear him that, right? Hear him back say that, pray that. God, remember mercy. Now the funny thing is for me and you, it's really, really hard for us to have wrath and have mercy at the same time. Almost always, if we have wrath, we're sinning. Unless we have a really, really good, godly, biblical reason for it. But normally, we can't handle anger and compassion at the same time. But you know what? God can. God is perfect in all of his attributes. God can be perfectly wrathful and perfectly merciful at the same time. And so Habakkuk reminds himself and he reminds God, God, in your wrath, remember mercy. In Isaiah chapter 54, verse 8, Isaiah says, In an outburst of anger, this is him speaking for God, In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. You see, if we're God's people, we don't have to worry about God's wrath and judgment. Even if we're on the earth and God judges the earth, we only have to deal with it for a short time. Because once we're gone out of this life, what? We're in heaven forever. No wrath, no judgment. No sin, just perfect holiness and fellowship with God. So even in wrath, God, remember mercy. So for your small groups in a little bit, here's the question I want you to talk about. I'm going to give you a couple, but here's one. Is how and why should you pray for God to be merciful to you and to other people? How and why should you pray for God's mercy on you and others? All right? So Habakkuk starts... And the first response that we have to God's amazing justice on evil is we need to pray for mercy. Because the reality is, there's a lot of sin, 
which means there's a lot of judgment coming. We need to pray for God's mercy. In wrath, God, remember mercy. So the first answer, the first response we need to have is we need to pray for mercy. The second response we need to have, we get in the whole middle section of this chapter, 3 through 15, and it's this. We're gonna, we need to recognize God's sovereignty. We need to recognize God's sovereignty. Now, I want you guys to pay attention. We're going to walk through this little section of chapter 3, and you guys need to look. You can even start looking ahead now, because what he writes here is kind of a reflection of a bunch of different stories that have happened in the past, and in the book of Exodus, and Numbers, and things like that. So I want you to look here, and I'm going to ask you guys which one you think that he's referring to when he gets to these verses, all right? So, verse 3, God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Somebody tell me where uh, Teman and Mount Paran are. Anybody? You just put your hand up just because that's your natural reflex. No, Stop that. Don't do it that. somewhere north? It is literally not north, actually. <laughs> <laughs> what? This is for south. It is south, and you only know that because he accidentally put up his hand. All right? So here's the deal. Mount Teman and Mount Paran are kind of the two southeast and southwest corners of Israel. What does it tell us? We're talking about things that happened in the south of Israel. Well, what happened in the south of Israel is when God originally came to Moses in the burning bush. And then when God brought his people out from Egypt in the amazing exodus. And then he led them through the wilderness over the 40 years. And then he brought them into the promised land. All that happened in this big area between Teman and Mount Paran. Okay? So we're talking about stuff that's going on in there. How are we going to learn about God's sovereignty? How do we see God's power in these stories? Well, let's see. Habakkuk says, His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of His praise. There's going to be so many things in this chapter, guys, that we just can't get our head around. But the reality is we need to have that view of God. We need to understand that God is so much bigger and more beautiful and grander and splendorous than we can even understand. Psalm 113.4, The Lord is high above all nations and His glory is above the heavens. Alright, verse 4 his radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. Tell me what that sounds like. What's kind of the picture you get in your head when you read this? Uh, Moses getting God's Yeah, there's one. That's an idea. Okay, it's just the idea of just this, this blazing light, right? His radiance. It says like the sunlight, and maybe maybe that's a good idea. Sunlight's really bright, but it's almost more the idea of the like a lightning flash. You guys ever been there when you like look around, it's like pitch black and there's a storm going on and then suddenly for no good reason, you can just see stuff, right? And you're like, what's going on? And then, right? And then you hear the thunder come. That lightning flash just brightens everything up and you can see all of it. That's kind of the idea. His radiance is just like a flash of lightning. And then it says he has rays, literally like horns, things coming out of his hands that he can't even describe it. It's these, these lightning bolts, okay? Lightning bolts come out of his hand. So when we look up in the sky, we have these big tornado thunderstorms and lightnings everywhere. Don't think that, oh man, this is a pretty cool storm. Think, man, God is even bigger than that, okay? God plays with lightning. And then look at the end of verse 4. Somebody read me that last line in verse 4. He has rays flashing from his hand. What does it say after that? Just read it out loud. And there he veils his power. There's the hiding of his power. What does that mean? Any ideas? When the rays are flashing out of his hands, it's like he's hiding the 
like when he's doing that, he's hiding most of his power. Feels like when his race coming out of his hands, he's not hiding his power. He's showing his power. What do you mean? I mean, like, he's not using all of it. He's only using, like, a small amount of it. He's hiding most of his Pretty amazing. When you get lightning flashes and the brightest light we can get and the most power we can get, you know what that is? That's God hiding his power, not showing his power. Fox is right. That's the, the fringes of his ways, Job 26, 14. Behold, these are the fringes of his ways, and how faint a word we hear of him. But his mighty thunder, who can understand? <laughs> One commentary says, God's radiance, all this light coming from him, is both emanating, it's coming and showing, but it's also concealing, because it reveals his glory, but veils his power. And this is, this is great. Listen to this. He says, it's easy to forget that the light and warmth which showers the earth with blessings comes from a ball of fire that would consume the globe in a moment. So God's power is hidden in his glory, and his revelation is restrained, lest it consume his beholders. You guys know that about the sun, right? You're like, oh, the sun, it's so nice, it's a warm day, I like having the sunshine on my face. You're like, oh man, if we were like an inch closer to the sun, we would all just be burnt to a crisp, right? It's amazing the power of the sun that gives us the warmth that we have here. It's like that with God, except a billion times more. The reason God veils his glory and power is so that all of us aren't just obliterated. Radiance comes from his hand. His radiance is like sunlight. His rays come from his hand, and that's the hiding of his power. Verse 5, before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. Somebody tell me what kind of a Bible story that might be referring to. No. Yes. Egypt, okay? Somebody hit me with a plague. What? Frogs. Why is frogs always the first one? I think it's just because it's weird. All right, William? Locusts. Locusts. Darkness. Darkness. Yeah, the death of the firstborn. Pestilence and plague come after him. Did you know that God is sovereign over sickness, over tragedy, over destruction? We don't need to have this idea that, well, man, if God just wanted to prevent that, he could have. Well, he could have, but you know why it happened? Because God ordained it to happen for his own glory. God is using these things for his own purposes. Before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. All right, Habakkuk 3, verse 6. He stood and he surveyed the earth. He looked and he startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed and his ways are everlasting. Now, it says he stood and surveyed the earth. The word could mean surveyed, like he measured, but it's probably better that he made it shake, okay? It says he stood and he shook the earth. He looked and he startled the nations. The mountains are shattered and the ancient hills collapsed. You guys remember a story where God had a mountain shake? You remember that one? Mount Sinai. Good call. Everybody turn to Exodus chapter 19. This is a big one in our story, all right? Exodus chapter 19, because this is one of the most obvious shows of God's power when the people were there. Okay? Exodus 19. All right, we're going to start in verse 16. You ready? Now, it'd be real easy, because you guys are people that grow up at church. You're just going to read this, and you're like, oh, that's cool. Don't do that. 
Read this like you were actually there. Like you were actually in the scenario. Ready? Exodus 19, verse 16. It came about on the third day. It was morning. There was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Such a loud noise that everyone's shaking. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of a mountain. Verse 18. Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. God's power in fire and smoke and thunder and lightning and an entire mountain shaking in front of these people. And they all saw it. And at the end of that chapter, it comes down and, and they said, uh, we don't want to talk to God anymore. Moses, you go talk to him. Why? Because they're scared. Because when God comes, he shakes the mountains, startles the nations, the mountains are shattered and the hills collapse. But you know what's amazing? I love the end of that verse. Look at the end of verse 6. What does it say about God? After it talks about everything falling apart and collapsing. What does the end of verse 6 say? His ways, his ways are everlasting. His ways are everlasting. You know what's not going to last the test of time? Mountains. And you're like, no, those things are big. They, they're not moving. All right? Yeah, they will. When God comes and judges the earth, the mountains are going to move. They're going to collapse and fall over. They're going to bow down to God. But His ways are everlasting. His ways don't change. Nothing about God moves. Only the things in front of Him. Verse 7, it says, I saw the tents of Cushion under distress, and the tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Okay? What's the picture you get there? People hiding inside their tents, hoping nobody comes to find them, right? They're all jumping in their tents and zipping them up, except they didn't have zippers back then. So they put the youngest kid out there to hold the tent closed. I don't know. Maybe. Sacrifice the little, right? That's what always happens. They're afraid. It says they're trembling. They're under distress. All the people around, when God brought his people out from the Exodus and through the, uh, through the wilderness into the promised land, you know what happened to all the other people around? They were terrified. You remember in Joshua, when uh, the spies go and they're staying with Rahab? This is what she says. She said to the men, I know, she's not an Israelite, okay? She's a foreigner. She says, I know that the Yahweh God has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. He said, she says, we are melting on the inside because we're afraid of your God. That's how big our God is. And then look at verse 8. The Lord Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea? That you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? Habakkuk says, God, are you angry with water? Why? Because God has done a lot of stuff with water. You guys remember when they came out, or actually before they came out, in Exodus, uh, what was the other plague that we didn't talk about that had to do with a river? Nope. Yes. Yeah, Nile turning to blood. It's like, God, are you angry at the Nile? Because you're kind of ruining this whole thing for everybody. Okay? No, God's not angry at the Nile River. 
and then they come out and they're running from Pharaoh's army and they come up against the Reed Sea. And what happens then? How does God protect them? He splits the sea. Splits the sea. Moses raises his hand, the whole sea. And guys, okay. Um, the sea moved. You get that? Water just stood up on the sides like walls, it says, and there was dry land in the middle. And a million people walked through. That's just crazy. But that's what God does. God, are you, are you angry at the sea? You're just splitting the Red Sea like no big deal? And then you guys remember in Joshua, when they're after the wilderness, they're coming back into the land. They come up to the Jordan River. And you remember what happens there? Anybody remember? How'd they cross the Jordan? God had them build a bunch of little rafts, ferry people across. No? What happened? It moved just like the sea. Yeah, the priests walk in up to their ankles and then the water stops. I don't know how many of y'all have ever seen a river um, telling a river to like, hey, hold up right there, I gotta go, doesn't work. But when God does it, it does. The Nile River, the Red Sea, the Jordan River, Psalm 114.3, it says, the sea looked and it fled from God and the Jordan turned back. God, are you, are you angry with all these rivers and seas? Because every time we get to them, they're afraid of you. No, God's not angry. But he's using them. The Bible Knowledge Commentary. God is not displeased with nature. He was using nature as a tool to demonstrate his power. He exhibited it in the Nile River, the Red Sea, and the Jordan. Alright, verse 9. Somebody read verse 9 out loud. Asher, you want to read verse 9? Uh, you stood there, sheep, on your bow, Yeah. Your bow was made bare. You took your bow out of your sheath. You know, you guys, you ever seen somebody walking around? You know, this is Texas. You don't, we don't see a lot of bows, but we see people with guns sometimes, right? And I was in Bucky's like three days ago, and there's a dude, he's got his, his gun on the side, and it's in his holster, and it's strapped down. You see a policeman, they got a gun on their holster, right? Well, it's perfectly safe. As long as it's in the holster, I'm not worried, nothing's going on. What happens if I'm standing in Bucky's and that gun comes out of the holster? Am I scared now? I'm a little scared. I'm leaving Bucky's. May never come back. Okay? And I love Bucky's. Let's be really clear. But when the, something comes out of its sheath, that's a problem. And what does it say God's doing? His bow's made bare. It came out of the sheath. He is ready for battle. And then uh, Asher's version, it said something about he called for arrows, right? Mine says, the rods of chastisement were sworn. That's a, that's an old-fashioned way of saying arrows are not good for the people that they chase. Okay, Rods of chastisement. God is chastising you with these arrows coming out of his bow. Psalm 7, write this down. Psalm 7, verses 11 to 13. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. You guys understand, God is full of love and compassion and peace. But God is angry Every moment of the day. Why? Because there is sin every moment of the day. God has indignation every day. Psalm 7:12. If a man does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has prepared for himself deadly weapons, and he makes his arrows fiery shafts. God will judge sin, and he will use the weapons at his disposal. And then it says, God cleaved the earth with rivers. You guys think of a time when God opened up a river out of something else? No. Somebody else. Come on. 
The guy's carrying the team here. A rock? A rock? Do your rocks make water? No. Okay, Elijah too. But yeah, I, I'm thinking of the rock thing, right? The rock. Moses hits a rock with a stick and water comes out. Just so y'all know, that's not normal, okay? Rocks don't make water, even really wet ones. They don't make water, okay? It's not like you squeeze a rock, doesn't happen. By the way, also, just so you know, when Moses hit the rock and water came out, it wasn't like he hit it in like just the right spot. Like nailed it in it. No. Why did it break open and water come out? Because God did it. God made water come out of rock when he wanted to. What's that? Amazing how God was kind to bring water even when Moses disobeyed, right? You know how many times God's been kind to you when you disobeyed? And me? Amazing. God cleaves the earth with rivers. God wants a river. He's got one. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 10. We're moving through. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice and it lifted high its hands. The mountains saw you and quaked. We're going back to that vision of God shaking Mount Sinai. But then look, it's talking about water again. The downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice and lifted high its hands. Psalm 93.3 says, The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. All right, there's two events that this could be referring to. Tell me, uh, tell me which ones you think they are. Tell me which Bible story, which flannel graph you're thinking of when you hear the deep uttered forth its voice and lifted high its hands. Noah. I'm a patient guy. Don't worry. What? Noah. Noah. Okay, so that's a flood, and it literally says that the deeps were broken open, right? And so we're thinking, all right, maybe this is talking about the flood, the earth-wide flood. All right? What's the other one? Jonah. Not Jonah. What's the other one? We already talked about it, actually. Where it says, water, uh, what does it say? The deep uttered forth, and the deep lifted high its hands. Taylor. Uh, the, the parting of the Red Sea. Good try, Asher. You just talked with it and helped me point at you. Okay? The parting of the Red Sea, right? When God has Moses lift up his hands, and, and literally the water just like, it raises his hands. It's like, okay, whatever you say, God. The mountains quake at God, and water stands up. Pretty amazing. Verse 11. Somebody read verse 11. Who's, who's a good reader? Somebody impress me. Uh, all right, William, read uh, verse 11. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. Okay. Sun and moon standing still in their places. Anybody know that story? Uh, all you people are fired. That dude. Uh, wasn't it when uh, Israelites were taking one of the cities and Moses was holding up his hand and that? Not Moses. You're close. You're close, though. Who was Moses' protege, dude after him? Joshua. Joshua. Yes, Joshua chapter 10. All right, listen. Joshua 10, verses 12 to 14. That was the right story, though. You, you had it. Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. <laughs> he said, in the sight of Israel. This is, this, is, this is pretty gutsy. He stands up in front of everybody and he tells them what's going to happen. O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ayalon. If you're going to do something crazy like telling the moon not to move anymore, I wouldn't say it in front of people because they're all going to think you're crazy. Okay? 
But Joshua stands up and he says, sun don't move, moon don't move. And you know what happened? They listened. The sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Isn't it written in the book of Jashar and the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and didn't hasten to go down for a whole day. They got an extra day of daylight without the sun moving. And just so you know, just for fun, someday when you're older and you're bored and it's in the middle of the night and you can't sleep, just Google what would happen to the physics of the earth if the earth stopped turning. Because you know the sun didn't stop moving, right? The earth turns and the sun stays there. So for the sun to stand still means the earth stopped turning for 24 hours. Just so you know, that doesn't work. Unless God is sustaining the whole thing. And then, the rest of that verse, they went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear, your glittering spear, your lightning spear. You know, you think you got your cool superheroes that got hammers and stuff? Uh, God has a spear of lightning, and it's not made up. It's real. Okay? Here's the deal. When you're, uh, when you're standing out on a clear night, what can you see a lot of up in the sky? Stars. Yeah, that's true. All right. Okay. Moon. You can see the moon really clearly. Full moon. You see all these stars, right? Well, what happens when you get a really bright light shown in your face? Can you see the stars anymore? No. Okay. So if God were to flash lightning while you were looking at the stars, could you see the stars anymore? No. It says the stars, they run away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your lightning spear. When God flashes forth his brilliance, even the brilliance of the creation doesn't match up. Psalm 18, 14. He sent out his arrows and he scattered them. Lightning flashes in abundance and he routed them. All right, verse 12. We're still seeing how powerful and strong and sovereign God is. In indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. Psalm 68, 7. God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked. One commentator says, the display of divine power was not just to terrify the world. Why do you think God did all these things? Why did he stand up the water on one end and, and part the Jordan River? And why did he stop the sun in the middle of the sky? All that. Not either of you. Keep answering. To display his power. Okay, to display his power. That's one thing. But why else? Think about those stories. Think about God standing up the water in the Red Sea. Or flashing his light around, or make the sun stand still. What was he doing? Um, showing power. Okay, showing power. What else? Showing glory. Showing glory. Helping his people. Think about all those stories. The plague on the Egyptians. Why? So that his Pharaoh would send the people away. Why did he open up the Red Sea? So that his people could escape. Why did he open up the Jordan River? So he could give them the promised land. All these things... Show the power and glory of God, but all of these things God does for the people he loves. You get that? If you're one of God's people, the same God that can part the Red Sea like nothing cares about you and cares about your life and cares what goes on. And he does things every day to protect and sustain you. They're just not quite as cool as standing up the Red Sea. Sorry, we missed that one. But look at verse 13. We had all these things, the display of God's power. But look at verse 13. It tells us why. You went forth for the salvation of your people. God didn't stand up the Red Sea on end just because he was bored that day. God stood up the Red Sea because he cared about his people. 
You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. Psalm 68, 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. Listen to this. I love this one. Psalm 68, 20. God is to us a God of deliverances. You understand that? God is a God of deliverance. God is a God who takes care of his people, who gives them a way of escape, who protects them. To God the Lord belong escapes from death. You know who can keep you from dying? Not you, not a doctor, not your parents. The only person who can truly protect you from dying, who gives you an escape from death, is who? It's God. God is sovereign over that. Psalm 20, verse 6, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. Now, when we talk about anointed here, we're not talking about just all of us being anointed as God's people. We're talking about a very special position. The person who's supposed to sit on the throne of David is the one who's anointed. Well, we had David and some of his sons, but ultimately, who's the one who owns the throne of David forever and ever? Jesus Christ. The last David, right? He's the one who owns this, this title of God's anointed. When you get to Psalm chapter 2, y'all, y'all need to go read Psalm 2 sometime. It's a lot of fun. God says, this is my son. Today I have begotten you, and I have established my king on Zion, my anointed one. You know who he's talking about? Not talking about David. He's talking about Christ, the king. So here's a question. We're talking about all this. Look back at verse 13. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. When God was standing up the Red Sea, when he was parting the Jordan, when he was sending plagues on Egypt, and so on and so forth, all these amazing things that we just saw, how was God protecting the anointed one, the Messiah? Was Jesus at the Red Sea? Not exactly. Was he at the Jordan River? Not exactly. How was God protecting the anointed by doing all these things for Israel? Oh, embrace the awkward silence. Taylor? What? Okay. How was God protecting Jesus by doing all these things in the Old Testament? All right, I'm going to give you a hint. The Old Testament tells us very specifically that the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus now, had to come from a very certain specific kind of people and line and family, right? Uh, he had, so God is preserving his people because then Jesus can be born. Give the man a cookie. I think we're out of cookies. Sorry, bro. Rice Christmas. God, by protecting his people and continuing to reveal himself throughout the Old Testament, is setting everything up just perfectly for the Messiah to come, right? God establishes all of it, all of the prophecies fulfilled, all of his people protected throughout all these things, so that ultimately he is here for the salvation of the Anointed One, the one who would come to save his people. But you notice, God doesn't do that uh, just by being nice to everybody. Look at verse 13. You struck the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. 
you trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. You know what God does to people that attack his people? It's not a good thing. He destroys them. It says he, he pierced with his own spear the head of his throngs. It says he struck the head of the house of evil. Maybe it's talking about Pharaoh. Maybe it's talking about the Babylonians to come. We don't exactly know. But God fights against his enemies for the sake of his people. Now look at verse, uh, verse 15. You trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. Can you think of a time when there were a bunch of horses and then God used water and he won? Red Sea. Red Sea. Again, we're back to the Red Sea. Why is it the Red Sea? Because the Red Sea was the thing. It was the Exodus, all right? Pharaoh's army comes in, and uh, I love how Habakkuk says it. He says, you trampled on the sea with your horses. It's like, oh, who's going to win? Is it going to be Pharaoh and his horses and chariots? Or is it going to be maybe like God? And it's like, uh, God's horses win, all right? The sea comes crashing down and destroys the entire army. The surge of many waters. Just so you know, if any of you were thinking of trying, um, fighting God is a really bad idea, okay? You're going to lose. And I'm betting against you, just so we're clear. Nothing personal. You trample on the sea with your horses. Exodus 15, 8, it says pretty much the same thing. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up, and the flowing waters stood up like a heap, and the deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. So look back over some of those verses. Radiance comes from his hand. Plague goes, comes after him. He shatters the mountains. He rages against the rivers. He cleaves the earth. Mountains shake. Downpour of water. He marches through the earth. He tramples the nations. Do you know how big God is? You don't. You should think about it. Here's your other question I want you to talk about in small groups maybe. Is how can you work on thinking more about how big God is? What is something you can do really practically to think more about how big and powerful and strong God is? You're like, well, I already know how big he is. No, you don't. We just read all this stuff and you guys are amazed. You should be. How big is God? How can we remember that? All right, so we have two responses so far. What was our first response? First couple verses. You guys remember? We need to pray for God's mercy. There's a lot of sin, and so a lot of judgment, and we need mercy. What was the second response we had? <clears throat> I remember? We need to recognize God's sovereignty. That's what we just saw. God's power and sovereignty over all those things. And so here's our third response. You ready? Last couple verses. We must trust in God's salvation. We must trust in God's salvation. See, here's the deal, guys. God is coming with wrath against sin. And if you were questioning, God is powerful enough to do that. If he can manage the mountains and the seas, he can deal with sin. So the question is, are you going to be dealt with because of your sin? Or are you going to be saved? Look at verse 16. This is Habakkuk talking again. I heard, he heard all this. He's hearing all this being recounted to him. And he says, my inward parts trembled at the sound my lips quivered and decay enters my bones. In my place I tremble. Just so you know, if you get to see and hear and remember things like this about God, it should make you shake. 
Habakkuk, his, his physical body, he says his lips are quivering, his bones feel weak. His body is physically affected by thinking about God like this. And then look at the end of verse 16. I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. He says, now I know what's going to happen. I know that God's going to bring the Chaldeans against us. He's going to punish us. I know that he's going to punish the Chaldeans in the same way after that. And now I have the answer. I just need to wait. I need to wait patiently for the day of distress. The day of distress on us and then the day of distress on God's enemies. He has to wait patiently, knowing that the situation was in the capable hands of an almighty God who would bring about his perfect will according to his eternal timetable. Verse 17, this this is amazing. How do you trust in God in really hard times? How can we possibly just relax and rest in what God has for us? It's kind of like this. Look at verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the Lord. Now there's six things he said could happen. And it's kind of a kind of a increasing severity. The fig trees shouldn't blossom. Fig trees were kind of a, uh, what'd you say, a Colombian delicacy, right? Fig trees, they're just dessert, candy, Rice Krispie treats. You know what happens if you don't have Rice Krispie treats? You're probably going to survive, okay? He says there's no more figs. But then there's no fruit on the vines. There's no grapes. Well, that made wine, which is what they drank mostly. Okay, now there's, there's nothing good to drink. The yield of the olive. Well, olives weren't just for eating for them. They pressed it to get olive oil. They use that for their lamps. So there's no electricity. There's no lights anymore. They use it for cooking. There's nothing good to cook anymore. you got to eat just cold stuff. So there's no dessert. There's no drinks. There's no lights. The fields produce no food. Okay, now we literally have no food to eat. There is no grain, no bread. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold, no meat to eat, no cattle in the stalls. Nothing to do our farm work for us. Nothing to help us with our work. We have no food. We have no drinks. We have no lights. We have nothing to help us with our work. We have no money. We're out of everything. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. Yet, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. So, if I'm going to ask you guys in this room, my guess is you don't really care about fig trees or olive oil, right? You're like, I don't actually think I've ever seen olive oil in my entire life. Okay? You don't know. You don't care about these things. But here's the deal. You've got six things. Okay? You've got the things that you really wish you had. And if God took away the little things and then the bigger things, and then suddenly you're out of literally everything, you have nothing left in this life. Can you rejoice in the Lord? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord in the God of my salvation. Look at verse 19. Pull that up. The Lord God is my strength. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
Isaiah 12, 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. How can the people here have joy in the midst of all of this? How can you possibly rejoice while you have nothing left? Well, it's because they don't have nothing left. They have God left, right? God is the only inexhaustible source of joy. And uh, one of the commentators says, Far too many people keep trying to buy joy, but happiness is not found in circumstances. Just so you know, if your life is all about how you're doing today, if you have a good day or a bad day, how much money you have or don't, how many people like you or don't, your life is going to be like this all the time. You ask any of these older folks, they'll tell you it's worse than this, okay? Because you've got nothing to sustain you. But if you have the joy that God brings, everything else fades away. Joy is available to everyone, even those stripped of every possession, because joy is found in a person. It comes in a personal relationship with the Lord. So even in the worst circumstances, we can smile. The Lord God is my strength. He's a God of strength. He girds us with strength. And he makes our feet like hinds feet. Anybody know what that means? Deer. Like deer. You ever seen a video of, you know, like those craggy cliffs and those deer just kind of walking along the cliffs, walking in between all the rocks, and you're like, that would kill the rest of us. But the deer, it's just what they do. God can make us to where life doesn't stress us out. It doesn't throw things at us we can't handle. We can just walk through all those hard times with joy. The prophet's complaints were swallowed up by confidence. His fear turned to faith. Habakkuk was transformed from a sour, jittery prophet weighed down with burdens to a secure, joyous preacher buoyed up with blessing. Bible knowledge commentary said. And then listen to this one. This is good. This is Dr. Bailey. The Lord God is at work accomplishing his purpose over the earth. Like Habakkuk, believers who live in unsettled times can find strength in the God who works in history to accomplish his purpose. So the question for you guys, as we think back through all of Habakkuk, those three chapters, chapter one, we learn that, that God is doing something that we can't understand. So when we have questions about how God is handling life, we don't need to say, what are you doing, God? We need to just trust that God knows better than us. The second thing we need to learn is that God is a God of justice, and sin is going to be dealt with one way or the other. The third thing we know is that God is sovereign. He's a God of strength. He can do whatever he puts his mind to. He will accomplish all of his good pleasure. So, with all of that in mind, the real question that comes down to is, are you on God's side or not? Because you notice he says the proud one, the one who his soul is not right within him. Remember what we learned this morning? Uh, God judges those people really, really harshly. But the righteous one lives by his faith. So if you're not someone who's trusted in Jesus, who's turned from your sin and put your faith in Christ, you don't get to enjoy these blessings. You don't get to trust in the God of your salvation because you don't have salvation. But if you are one who's righteous, who's been made righteous by the blood of Christ, you can sit here and you can go and you can have an awful, terrible, no good, very bad day. And you can go through a whole life where evil is everywhere. And you know what? You can keep your head up. Because even if everything else is taken away from you, you can say, I still rejoice in the Lord. I rejoice in the God of my salvation. 
Dr. Bailey finishes up. He says, The Lord who does not change is sovereign over history, not only in the past, but also in the present and the future, as he works for his own glory and the redemption of his people. So, God versus evil. Are we wondering who's winning? No, God wins. God's perfectly wise, he's perfectly just, and he is perfectly sovereign. He's working out all of his plans just how he expects. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that we can be saved from the judgment that comes on sin. Thank you, God, that you are doing an amazing work that we couldn't even believe. That you are redeeming sinners and reconciling sinners to yourself. Thank you, God, that even though you are holy and have a perfect standard of righteousness, that you still made a way of salvation for us. God, if we turn from our sins and we trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, you will save us. We are so thankful that we can trust in the God of our salvation. Even if everything else is taken away, if everything else falls apart, we can trust in you, God. You are the perfect, holy God. You manage all things under the counsel of your will, and you accomplish all of your good pleasure. Thank you.